Autoeroticism, a study of the spontaneous manifestations of the sexual impulse, part 2. Section 2 of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume 1 by Havelock Alice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Omotutri. Autoeroticism, a study of the spontaneous manifestations of the sexual impulse. Part 2, Section 2. It is natural to ask how this conception affects the elaborate picture of hysteria laboriously achieved by Charcot and his school. It cannot be said that it abolishes any of the positive results reached by Charcot, but it certainly alters their significance and value. It presents them in a new light and changes the whole perspective. With his passion for getting at tangible definite physical facts, Charcot was on very safe ground. But he was content to neglect the psychic analysis of hysteria, while yet proclaiming that hysteria is a purely psychic disorder. He had no cause of hysteria to present, save only heredity. Freud certainly admits heredity, but as he points out, the part it plays has been overrated. It is too vague and general to carry us far, and when a specific and definite cause can be found, the part played by heredity recedes to become merely a condition the soil on which the specific etiology works. Here probably Freud's enthusiasm at first carried him too far, and the most important modification he has made in his views occurs at this point. He now attaches a preponderant influence to heredity. He has realized that sexual activity in one form or another is far too common in childhood to make it possible to lay very great emphasis on traumatic lesions of this character. And he has also realized that an outcrop of fantasies may somewhat later develop on these childish activities, intervening between them and the subsequent morbid symptoms. He is thus led to emphasize anew the significance of heredity, not, however, in charcoal sense, as general neuropathic disposition, but as sexual constitution. The significance of infantile sexualations has also tended to give place to that of infantilism of sexuality. The real merit of Freud's subtle investigations is that, while possibly furnishing a justification of the imperfectly understood idea that had floated in the mind of observers ever since the name hysteria was first invented, he has certainly supplied a definite psychic explanation of a psychic malady. He has succeeded in presenting clearly, at the expense of much labor, insight, and sympathy, a dynamic view of the psychic processes involved in the constitution of the historical state, and such a view seems to show that the physical symptoms laboriously brought to light by charcoal are largely but epiphenomena and by-products of an emotional process, often of tragic significance to the subject, which is taking place in the most sensitive recess of the psychic organism. That the picture of the mechanism involved, presented to us by Professor Freud, cannot be regarded as a final and complete account of the matter may readily be admitted. It has developed in Freud's own hands, and some of the developments will require very considerable confirmation before they can be accepted as generally true. But these investigations have at least served to open the door, which Charcot had inconsistently held closed, into the deeper mysteries of history, and have shown that here, if anywhere, further research will be profitable. They have also served to show that hysteria may be definitely regarded as, in very many cases at least, 
a manifestation of the sexual emotions and their lesions. In other words, a transformation of autoeroticism. The conception of hysteria so vigorously enforced by Charcot and his school is thus now beginning to appear incomplete. But we have to recognize that that incompleteness was right and necessary. A strong reaction was needed against a widespread view of hysteria that was in large measure scientifically false. It was necessary to show clearly that hysteria is a definite disorder, even when the sexual organs and emotions are swept wholly out of consideration. And it was also necessary to show that the lying and dissimulation so widely attributed to the hysterical were merely the result of an ignorant and unscientific misinterpretation of psychic elements of the disease. This was finally and triumphantly achieved by Charcot's school. There is only one other point in the explanation of hysteria which I will here refer to, and that because it is usually ignored, and because it has relationship to the general psychology of the sexual emotions. I refer to that physiological hysteria, which is the normal counterpart of the pathological hysteria, which has been described in its physical details by Charcot, and to which alone the term should strictly be applied. Even though hysteria as a disease may be described as one and indivisible, there are yet to be found, among the ordinary and fairly healthy population, vague and diffused hysteroid symptoms which are dissipated in a healthy environment, or pass nearly unnoted only to develop in a small proportion of cases under the influence of a more pronounced heredity, or a severe physical or psychic lesion, into that definite morbid state which is properly called hysteria. This diffused hysteroid condition may be illustrated by the results of a psychological investigation carried on in America by Miss Gertrude Stein among the ordinary male and female students of Harvard University and Radcliffe College. The object of the investigation was to study, with the aid of a planset, the varying liability to automatic movements among normal individuals. Nearly 100 students were submitted to experiment. It was found that automatic responses could be obtained in two sittings from all, but a small proportion of the students of both sexes, but that there were two types of individuals who showed a special aptitude. One type, probably showing the embryonic form of neurasthenia, was a nervous, high-strung, imaginative type, not easily influenced from without, and not so much suggestible as autosuggestible. The other type, which is significant from our present point of view, is thus described by Minstein. In general, the individuals, often blonde and pale, are distinctly phlegmatic, if emotional, decidedly of the weakest sentimental order. They may be either large, healthy, rather heavy, and lacking in vigor, or they may be what we call anemic and phlegmatic. Their power of concentrated attention is very small. They describe themselves as never being held by their work. They say that their minds wander easily, that they work on after they are tired, and just keep pegging away. They are very apt to have premonitory conversations. They anticipate the words of their friends. They imagine whole conversations that afterward come true. The feeling of having been there is very common with them. That is, they feel under given circumstances that they have had that identical experience before in all its details. They are often fatalistic in their ideas. They indulge in daydreams. As a rule, they are highly suggestive. There have been a picture of the physical constitution and psychic temperament on which the classical symptoms of hysteria might easily be built up. But these persons were ordinary students, and while a few of their characteristics are what is commonly and vaguely called morbid, on the whole they must be regarded 
as ordinarily healthy individuals. They have the continental constitution and predisposition on which some severe circulation at the psychological moment might develop the most definite and obstinate symptoms of hysteria. But under favorable circumstances, they will be ordinary men and women, of no more than ordinary abnormality or ordinary power. They are among the many who have been called to hysteria at birth. They will never be among the few who are chosen. We may have to recognize that on the side of the sexual emotions, as well as in general constitution, a condition may be traced among normal persons that is hysteroid in character, and serves as the healthy counterpart of a condition which in hysteria is morbid. In women, such a condition has been traced, though misnamed by Dr. King. Dr. King describes what he calls sexual hysteria in women, which he considers a chief variety of hysteria. He adds, however, that it is not strictly a disease, but simply an automatic reaction of the reproductive system, which tends to become abnormal under conditions of civilization and to be perpetuated in a morbid form. In this condition, he finds 12 characters. 1. Time of life, usually between puberty and climatide. 2. Attacks rarely occur when subject is alone. 3. Subject appears unconscious, but is not really so. 4. C is instinctively ashamed afterward. 5. It occurs usually in single women, or in those single or married, whose sexual needs are unsatisfied. 6. No external evidence of disease, and, as I can point it out, the needs are not flattened. The woman's physical condition is not impaired, and C may be especially attractive to man. 7. Warmth of climate and the season of spring and summer are conducive to the condition. 8. The paroxysm is short and temporary. 9. While light touches are painful, farm pressure and rough handling give relief. 10. It may occur in the occupied, but an idle purposeless life is conducive. 11. The subject delights in exciting sympathy and in being fondled and caressed. 12. There is defect of will, and a strong stimulus is required to lead to action. Among civilized women, the author proceeds, this condition does not appear to subserve any useful purpose. Let us, however, go back to aboriginal women, to women of the woods and the fields. Let us picture ourselves a young aboriginal Venus in one of our earliest historical paroxysms. In doing so, let us not forget some of the twelve characteristics previously mentioned. She will not be acting her part alone, or if alone, it will be in a place where someone else is likely soon to discover her. Let this Venus be now discovered by a youthful Apollo of the woods. A man with fully developed animal instincts. He and she, like any other animals, are in the free field of nature. He cannot but observe to himself. This woman is not dead. She breathes and is warm. She does not look ill. She is plump and rosy. He speaks to her. She neither hears, apparently, nor responds. Her eyes are closed. He touches, moves, and handles her at his pleasure. She makes no resistance. What will this primitive Apollo do next? He will cure the fit and bring the woman back to consciousness, satisfy her emotions and restore her volition, not by delicate touches that might be agonizing to her hyperesthetic scheme, but by vigorous massage, passive motions and succession that would be painless. The emotional process on the part of the woman would end, perhaps with mingled laughter, tears and shame. And when accused afterward of the part which ancestrally acquired properties of a nervous system, 
had compelled her to act as a preliminary to the event, what woman would not deny it and be angry? But the course of nature having been followed, the natural purpose of the hysterical paroxysm accomplished, there would remain as a result of the treatment, instead of one discontented woman, two happy people, and the possible beginning of a third. Natural primary sexual history in woman, he concludes, is a temporary modification of the nervous government of the body and the distribution of nerve force, occurring for the most part, as we see it today, in prudish women of strong moral principle, whose volition has disposed them to resist every sort of liberty or approach from the other sex, consisting in a transient abdication of the general volitional and self-preservational ego, while the reins of government are temporarily assigned to the usurping power of the reproductive ego, so that the reproductive government overrules the government by volition and does, as it were, forcibly compels the woman's organism to do dispose itself at a suitable time and place, as to allow, invite, and secure the approach of the other sex, whether she will or not, to the end that nature's imperious demand for reproduction shall be obeyed. This, perhaps, rather fantastic description is not a presentation of hysteria in the technical sense. But we may admit that it presents a state which, if not the real physiological counterpart of the hysterical convulsion, is yet distinctly analogous to the latter. The sexual orgasm has this correspondence with the hysterical field, that they both serve to discharge the nervous centers and relieve emotional tension. It may even happen, especially in the less severe forms of hysteria that the sexual orgasm takes place during the hysterical feed. This was found by Rosenthal of Vienna to be always the case in the semi-conscious paroxysms of a young girl whose condition was easily cured. No doubt such cases would be more frequently found if they were sought for. In severe forms of hysteria, however, it frequently happens, as so many observers have noted, that normal sexual excitement has ceased to give satisfaction, has become painful, perverted, paradoxical. Freud has enabled us to see how a shock to the sexual emotions injuring the emotional life at its source can scarcely fail sometimes to produce such a result. But the necessity for nervous explosion still persists. It may indeed persist even in an abnormally strong degree in consequence of the inhibition of the normal activities generally. The convulsive feat is the only form of relief open to the tension. A lady whom I long attended, remarks Ashwell, always rejoiced when the fit was over, since it relieved her system generally, and especially her brain, from painful irritation which had existed for several previous days. That the fit mostly fails to give real satisfaction, and that it fails to cure the disease, is due to the fact that it is a morbid form of relief. The same character of history is seen with more satisfactory results, for the most part in the influence of external nervous shock. It was the misunderstood influence of such shocks in removing hysteria which in former terms led to the refusal to regard hysteria as a serious disease. During the rebellion of 1745-46 to in Scotland, Cullen remarks that there was little hysteria. The same was true of the French Revolution and of the Irish Rebellion, while Rush, in a study on the influence of the American Revolution on the human body, observed that many hysterical women were restored to perfect health by the events of the time. In such cases, the emotional tension is given an opportunity to explosion in new and impersonal channels, and the chain of morbid personal emotions is broken. 
It has been urged by some that the fact that the sexual orgasm usually fails to remove the disorder in true hysteria excludes a sexual factor of hysteria. It is really, one may point out, an argument in favor of such an element as one of the factors of hysteria. If there were no initialization of the sexual emotions, if the natural healthy sexual channel still remained free for the passage of the emotional overflow, then we should expect that it would much oftener come into play in the removal of hysteria. In the more healthy, merely hysteroid condition, the psychic sexual organism is not injured and still responds normally, removing the abnormal symptoms when allowed to do so. It is the confusion between this almost natural condition and the truly morbid condition, alone properly called hysteria, which lead to the ancient opinion, inaugurated by Plato and Hippocrates, that hysteria may be cured by marriage. The difference may be illustrated by the difference between a distended bladder, which is still able to contact normally on its contents, when at last an opportunity of doing so is afforded, and the bladder in which distension has been so prolonged that nervous control had been lost and spontaneous expulsion has become impossible. The first condition corresponds to the constitution, which, while stimulating the hysterical condition, is healthy enough to react normally in spite of psychic lesions. The second corresponds to a state in which, owing to the prolonged stress of psychic traumatism, sexual or not, a definite condition of hysteria has arisen. The one state is healthy, though abnormal. The other is one of pronounced morbidity. The condition of true hysteria is thus linked onto almost healthy states, and especially to a condition which may be described as one of sex hunger. Such a suggestion may help us to see these puzzling phenomena in their true nature and perspective. At this point, I may refer to the interesting parallel and probable real relationship between hysteria and chlorosis. As Lujat has said, hysteria and chlorosis are sisters. We have seen that there is some ground for regarding hysteria as an exaggerated form of a normal process which is really an autoerotic phenomenon. There is some ground also for regarding chlorosis as the exaggeration of a physiological state connected with sexual conditions, more especially with the preparation for maternity. Hysteria is so frequently associated with anemic conditions that Pianaki has argued that such conditions really constitute the primary and fundamental cause of hysteria. Neurologiska Centrebla, March 1898. And centuries before Pianaki, Sittenham had stated his belief that poverty of the blood is the chief cause of hysteria. It would be some confirmation of this position if we could believe that chlorosis, like hysteria, is in some degree a congenital condition. This was the view of Vargio, who regarded chlorosis as essentially dependent on a congenital hypoplasia of the arterial system. Steeder, on the basis of elaborate study of 23 cases, has endeavored to prove that chlorosis is due to a congenital defect of development. Chestrift for Kavorskov and Gynecology, Volume 32, Part 1, 1895. These facts tend to prove that in chlorosis there are signs of general ill development and that, in particular, there is imperfect development of the breasts and sexual organs, with a tendency to contracted pelvis. Charin, again, regards uterine-ovarian inadequacy as at least one of the factors of chlorosis. Chlorosis, in its extreme form, may thus be regarded as a disorder of development, a sign of physical degeneracy. Even if not strictly a cause, a congenital condition, as Stockholm believes, British Medical Journal, December 14, 1895. 
be a predisposing influence. However, it may be in extreme cases, there is very considerable evidence to indicate that the ordinary enemy of young women may be due to storing up of iron in the system, and is so far normal, being a preparation for a function of reproduction. Some observations of bungees seem to throw much light on the real cause of what may be termed physiological chlorosis. He found by a series of experiments on animals of different ages that young animals contain a much greater amount of iron in their tissues than adult animals. That, for instance, the body of a rabbit an hour after birth contains more than four times as much iron as that of a rabbit two and a half months old. It does appear probable that at the period of puberty and later there is a storage of iron in the system preparatory to the exercise of the maternal functions. It is precisely between the ages of 15 and 23, as Stockman found by an analysis of his own cases, British Medical Journal, December 14, 1895, that the majority of cases occur. There was indeed, he found, no case in which the first onset was later than the age of 23. A similar result is revealed by the charts of Lloyd-Jones, which cover a vastly greater number of cases. We owe to Lloyd-Jones an important contribution to the knowledge of chlorosis in its physiological or normal relationships. He has shown that chlorosis is but the exaggeration of a condition that is normal at puberty, and in many women at each menstrual period, and which there is good reason to believe even has a favorable influence on fertility. He found that light-complexioned persons are more fertile than the dark-complexioned, and that at the same time, the blood of the latter is of less specific gravity, containing less hemoglobin. Lloyd Jones also reached the generalization that girls who have had chlorosis are often remarkably pretty, so that the tendency to chlorosis is associated with all the sexual and reproductive aptitudes that make a woman attractive to a man. His conclusion is that the normal condition of which chlorosis is the extreme and pathological condition is a preparation for motherhood. Eloy Jones, Chlorosis, the Special Enemy of Young Women, 1897, also numerous reports to the British Medical Association published in the British Medical Journal. There was an interesting discussion of the theories of chlorosis at the Moscow International Medical Congress in 1898. See Proceedings of the Congress, Volume Section 5, page 224. We may thus perhaps understand why it is that hysteria and anemia are often combined and why they are both most frequently found in adolescent young women who have yet had no sexual experiences. Chlorosis is a physical phenomenon, hysteria largely a psychic phenomenon, yet both alike may, to some extent at least, be regarded as sexual aptitude showing itself in extreme and pathological forms. And of Autoeroticism, Part 2, Section 2